Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Well, welcome back to Everyday Theology, and a particular welcome back to someone who I like to say is a friend at this point, although this is technically the second time we've talked, but we just caught up for a while and it was like old friends, uh, but that's Dr. Kelly Capic. Kelly, thanks so much again for being with us. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you, Aaron. This time's nicer because we actually have Zoom. Last time it was just kind of like a, an odd phone call pre like right in the beginning of COVID had no idea how to do all this, you know, oh, right. yeah, recording online. That. Yeah, that's right. But you know, we're moving up, <laughs> moving Bigger on up. And, I'm not sure if it's better, <laughs> but bigger things, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm over zoom. I mean, if we could be in a room oh, together, yeah. I'd be much happier, but yeah. you know, well, it'll happen at some point, some conference down the road, it'll happen. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, any updates? I mean, if for anyone who wants to know more about Kelly, they need to go back. And we did a podcast uh, some time ago, actually, kind of near the beginning mm. of COVID, really just talking about suffering uh, amidst COVID and some ideas about dealing with suffering. But any updates, you, your family, life? I know you're still at Covenant College, yeah. still a professor of yeah. uh, theological studies, right? Yep. I've been at Covenant 20 years now. And, um, my wife and I, uh, have been married 28. We were married nine years before we had kids. And my, uh, son is now a freshman in college and I have a daughter, oh. uh, All right. junior in high school. So, uh, we're in a new season of life, which is good. Um, but God's been faithful and, um, yeah, I'm not sure what to say beyond that. You know, we're, we are surviving. No, and actually, in, in many ways, thankful for this new season of life. It's been, it's been good, uh, yeah. even as it's been hard in recent years. Getting closer to being empty nesters, maybe? Yeah, it, it no. felt like we went from having two children to no children because our son went to college, even though it's nearby, and my daughter so busy. You know, mm -hmm. which is kind of the topic of the book we're going to talk about. But she she's gone a lot. So we joke with her that it's like we she lives with us. She's our roommate. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it does feel different. It's not yeah. like having a three and a five year old. Put it that way. Uh, no, I mean, we're me and my wife. We're, we're marching on January 27th. We'll learn that life for our first oh, child here. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Feel. Yeah, we're uh, you know, we're going to figure it out. Yeah. Hey, well, my wife always said, and this is really helpful. She just said, you know, God doesn't prepare you to be a parent of a 10 year old. He prepares you to be a parent of a one week old and then you get experience <laughs> and then you're a parent of a two week old, you know? Oh yeah. And, you know, you don't, he, he gives you the grace for the day, for the month, for the season. And I think there's a lot to that. You know, we're just trying to finish the baby room, but all this, uh, logistics and all this mm. stuff happening in the supply chain world, you know, just trying to get stuff in yeah. is tough, but I've heard that we're working, we're working early, so we'll make yeah. it happen, <laughs> but you, you mentioned it. So we're going to talk about it. You know, sure. one of the reasons why we have you on other than just wanting to catch back up again mm -hmm. and having another good conversation is that you've recently published a new book. You're only human. Yep. And I think the books have got some pretty interesting concepts that, 
even out out of the season of COVID and kind of into mm. a new season of life they're all dealing with that are really important to people. So maybe you can just give a brief overview of you know your thesis, the idea of the book, what you're trying sure. to convey, and we'll go from there. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this for at least 20 years. And it before COVID, it was very intense. And now as we're coming out of it, I, I think it's all hitting us again. But basically, I... I, I Put it this way, I think most of us, when we put our heads on our pillow at night, feel exhausted and the the voices of condemnation and guilt for not doing more, not getting more done, um, not being more places, not being more present are, are constantly there. Yeah. And I think that is as common in Christian circles as in non-Christian circles. And the way I would put it is one of my deep concerns is that we've really confused finitude, which means limits <laughs> with sin. Hmm. Uh, and that's a fancy way of saying, I think we feel guilty for things we shouldn't feel guilty about. Hmm. And um, the it's church kind of a radical idea yeah. for a lot of people, I think, even if I think I'll let you keep going, but, yeah. but I mean, that, that itself is, is tough for most people to hear because I think for so long in the church, maybe we've actually heard that those limitations are sinfulness. Yeah, you need to, you need to overcome them, right? right. And um, I think it's uh, a result of a weak doctrine of creation. And, hmm. you know, before we can talk more about that, but it, again, I think the church is just mirroring the larger world when when we, we all feel this, I mean, teenagers are feeling this. We can talk about that. Uh, that's, that was a surprising aspect of my research, but, but everyone feels this. And then the church, just like everyone else, the way we try and handle it is through time management answers. Hmm. And so I'm really interested in the, a lot. I think it's a theological problem more right. than a time management problem. And so I, I think we have a very weak doctrine of creation, which People don't know what I mean by that. But when I say, you know, I said, we don't talk about creation. They say, oh, yes, we do. And I said, well, what do we, what do we talk about when we talk about creation? And everyone says how old the earth is and how God made it. Right. And right. the fact that for 150 years, those two questions have dominated our conversation. And we think by talking about that, we really talking about the doctrine of creation is way too small. Yeah. And we're hurt by that. So actually, that's partly why we struggle with the goodness of our bodies the goodness of our limits. So yes, I'm interested in exploring the way God made us good. And when he made us good, that was a good creature and creatures by definition have limits. We hmm. can't be everywhere. We can't know everything. We can't do everything. And even before the fall, our interdependence with others, our dependence upon creation, our dependence upon God, all of that is part of the good of his creation. That's not part of the sin or fall. Hmm. And that that is really, I, that's one of those concepts that I, you know, when you hear at first, you go, oh, that there's some freedom to that, mm. right? All of a sudden you kind of go, oh, you're, you're giving me space mm. in this idea to not be perfect, to not, yeah. to not have to overcome all these limits, to actually go to bed and go, you know what? I didn't get X, Y, and Z done and that's okay. I didn't yeah. have the time and I don't have to feel guilty. Right. right? Um, then, then there's this other side where, you know, we kind of go, well, how do we push ourselves to say, yeah. how do I? overcome yeah. maybe where are the limits that I could overcome. Right. I think that's, that's a part of the conversation, but I want to actually start first with this idea of creation, because I think mm. 
I actually think that that is one of the most important topics that still hasn't broken through into the church mm-hmm. that seems to kind of have been percolating through academics for quite some time. Yeah. Right. And even right. more so a resurgence in the past 30 years or so, right. this idea of like, we've gotten, we've asked the wrong questions. We keep asking the questions, how long did it take and how did it happen versus what does it mean and why does it matter? Right. And, and while the church is still talking about those other two, that academics has been really pushing to talk about those other areas. Mm-hmm. Where do you see this going for us? What are some better questions in creation that we should be talking about that has been particularly helpful for you in, of course, writing this text? Yeah. I mean, for me, put it this way, I don't think we can properly understand redemption or our salvation without creation. Hmm. And the fact that we leave creation in the back, it's not just then we have kind of problematic views of the past or something like that. It affects how we view our lives now, how we view redemption. What is God interested in, right? Well, he's the one who, who gave us bodies. He's the one who created us with dependencies. He's the one who made us in these ways. And when you actually look at the identifying markers of what it means for Jesus to be king. Um, when John the Baptist is in prison and, and, and they're so like, are you the one or should we you know, you know, look for another? And he says, well, tell them the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear and the, the poor have the euangelion preach them, have the good news preach them. These kind of things, they're actually all about Jesus setting right the disorders of creation. Yeah. Yeah, and so cre- so redemption is the renewal of our humanity, not the undermining of it. A simple way of saying that, then, to make it not so academic, is the Christian life is not about being superhuman. God just wants us to be fully human, hmm. and being mm-hmm. fully human is not primarily about productivity. That's a fa- that's very much a modern Western individualistic framework that has gotten too far away. Right. So right. We, we do, like you said, and we can get back to it. I mean, it's appropriate at times to push ourselves. You know, humans have done amazing things by pushing against what were preconceived limits. And so we, you know, in the book, try and be careful through, through those kind of things. But, but having said that in our time right now, I think we have to become more clear about what it means to be a creature And that when God made creatures, especially human creatures, he said, this is good. And I like what I did. Yeah. I'm not, when I'm redeeming it, I'm not trying to crush and destroy what I made. I'm trying to renew it. Right. Right. Uh, What I like about that. I mean, when we've had guests in the past on Mm. the podcast, such as Carolyn Custis James, who's written a lot about kind of biblical patriarchy and, and about how that came about through the fall, not creation mm. right right and I, and i think there's this renewed reality for a lot of scholarship to say let's focus more on chapters one and two of genesis this creation story this pre-fall story about what the world was supposed to be and how it mm. was supposed to look as what we go back to by moving forward right right and 
that I think is really hard for a lot of people because they end up reading the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the New Testament, and then they kind of just live in that world without kind of focusing on what it's supposed to be, right? And I think it gets even worse when we actually think and have these kind of eschatologies or kind of uh, yeah. theologies of, of, of the end or whatever, right. of final things, where we just kind of assume God's going to blow up this earth and God's going right. to blow up everything and give us something brand new and then it'll yeah. be fixed rather than actually embodying the reality that God wants to fix this place and renew this place and renew our bodies and renew yeah. this world, not some other world, right? Yeah. So why did you want to write this? Like what you said it was percolating for 20 years, yeah. right? What kind of kept pushing you to, to write this? And then what made you kind of go, okay, now is the time to write this. I mean, the short answer is because I needed it. <laughs> um, so uh, I wrote a book, you kind of alluded to this earlier in the conversation, um, a very long story, story made short. My wife had uh, cancer in 2008 was declared cancer-free uh, a year or year and a half later, whatever. Um, but then in 2010, um, developed chronic pain. And since mm. that uh, time on that summer when it hit to this day, uh, there's never been a day for her to not be in pain and mm. serious fatigue. Oh, so that is part of it. And that led to, um, with her encouragement and a Templeton Foundation grant, led to this book called Embodied Hope, A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. Yeah. But part of what happened to us, I mean, we're kind of driven people and all of this kind of stuff, is God just kept trimming down our life. And it felt like I, I were, you know, we had no margin, so we had to start creating them. And it was still like, no, you're doing too much. You're doing too much. And that's been really hard for me. Even to this day, my wife's like, no, it's enough what we're doing is enough, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'll feel guilty if we're not busy every night, but that's actually shows how distorted things have become. So anyways, it, in some ways just forced. And for me, I never know fully what I think until I have to research, write and yeah. articulate it. Yeah. And I have been thinking about this for a long time. I ha I'm driven by this idea that finitude is not sin. Um, that, that need does not equal calling some of these key ideas. And so it was a way for me to start to explore it. And I've been really interested in the humanity of Jesus for 20, 25 years. And that's a big part of this book is to explore. I think it's another weakness as evangelicals, um, the kind of the world I come from, although I have no idea that term means who knows what these days. Yeah. But, oh, but who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But, but the humanity of Jesus is not something we've been strong on. I right. mean, everyone will affirm, yes, Jesus was fully human, but we really, what's really important is he's God. And if you listen, we really often undervalue or just basically deny or downplay his humanity. Yeah. And that hurts our humanity. I, I, yeah. Like, I, I think that's the point, right? When we downplay the humanity of Jesus, then, and we kind of really over, I, I don't, it's weird, weird to say kind of. Uh, yeah. overplay or kind of give more weight to his divinity, it really is a self-preservation tool mm. in my mind. Because if Jesus really is human, then mm. actually the things that he says that we should do and how he actually lives are things that we actually need to do and we need to live. Yeah. Because that is Jesus as being a human. But when we just 
you know, prioritize his, his divinity, then I can free myself from the guilt mm. of actually living those words of Jesus because mm. he's something different than me. Right. Right. He's like, yeah, he's God. So, you know, only God can do that really. So right. I'll do my best over here and I don't really have to, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, and I can see that happening. Although I tend to think, I tend to think actually we, um, how do I want to put this? We're, we're not taking him very serious. I, I don't think you have a lot of people in the Western church, particularly that we are just so quick to try and follow Jesus that this is a release for us. Mm. I, maybe because of yeah. what you're saying, it's like, no, he's in a different category. And so we just believe in him, but uh, we'll put it this way. One of the questions is, why does the life of Jesus matter? Is the only thing that matters is death. Right. And I know Paul exactly. says, I preach yeah. Christ crucified, but that's the culmination of his life. And right. lots of scholars have made the case, the cross and resurrection for Paul are equally tied together. And cross just represents this whole larger narrative. And, and for me, the life of Jesus has been very important. Not, not so much that he does this thing or that thing, but that he's fully human. Like, right. like in the book, I explore Tertullian in the third century. And it's very interesting because against this group called the Gnostics who are downplaying full humanity of Jesus and our bodies think our bodies are evil and the material right, world is right. evil. He really pushes on two things, the birth of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. And both of those are really important. And I love it because he explores like the birth of Jesus and he just doesn't flinch. He, he talks about afterbirth. He talks oh, about gosh. all of this, you know, all this, yeah, you know, blood. And, and people are like, that sounds irreverent. Why are you talking about that? What? And the Bible doesn't mention it. And the point is the Bible doesn't mention it because it assumes it because he's really human. Right. If he did pop out of Mary without any of that, that would be worth recording. Right. It's not worth recording if it's an old <laughs> birth, right? right? And so right. he's really pushing even back then, millennia ago. Do you really believe in the full humanity of Jesus? Because this affects your view of God. It affects right. your view of redemption. It affects your view of us and salvation. Yeah. And that's a funny thing, too, because there are traditions that I'm intimately tied to or close mm -hmm. to, you know, maybe not so much anymore, but that I cut my theological teeth within sure. that would even say things about Jesus, like in Jesus' birth, he didn't cry. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Because, because <laughs> to cry is that he was expressing a need and that is sinfulness. Right. So of but course, so that's a great example, right? Yeah, right. So Jesus, yeah. he doesn't cry because he can't sin and crying is a sin. Right. And he can't eat. That is a wonderful example. And that's not one. I mean, I talk a lot about the birth and different aspects of his need, but the crying is not a specific one. I don't think I mentioned, but you're, you got it exactly right. Him crying because he has the need of being fed at his mother's breast is not sinful. Right. Right. That is a creaturely need that is an appropriate expression given, you know, those kind of things. So that, that is, we have to explore what that looks like. And th there's a reason why we slip into thinking of Jesus as very stoic. Hmm. When you read the gospels, that's he's not stoic. No, he gets angry. He weeps. He gets quiet. He retreats, but he's not stoic. It's not too many, cash. too many, too many seventies Jesus movies where yeah. Jesus like, you know, 
floated everywhere he went and yeah, had yeah, little yeah. time for anyone, right? Yeah. I mean, this in, in the Reformation, the same thing happened. Calvin had this debate with Mino Simmons because Mino Simmons, you know, and you can see how hard it is because he's tr- he's trying to be godly and honor Jesus. So Mino Simmons talks about Christ and he's kind of drawing some New Testament language here, but he talks about his heavenly flesh. And that sounds very pious and very good. And Calvin freaks out. He's like, no, 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 it's not heavenly flesh like you're talking about. It's real flesh, right? <laughs> it's Lord of the Rings, just mon flesh, right? It's, yeah. It's real. And that really mattered. Mary is not just a vessel um, holding this alien pod. Jesus is genuinely really her son. And he gets, and this is a great example of the importance of women in redemption. He gets his full humanity from her. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the downplaying in Western theological thinking of Mary as Theotokos, right? The the, right. the mother of God, which has a, has a huge weighty history. So I don't want to right, downplay yeah. that at all. But because of the fear of what that might mean, we've just ignored it completely. Yeah, right. Yeah, Protestant circles in particular were so afraid that people will treat Mary as a co-redeemer. We never talk about her. Mm-hmm. And she's quite significant, actually. And you don't have to have her as a co-redeemer to praise God for her, which it seems like the Gospels encourage us to do. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's cyclical, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's we're afraid of what that could mean if we really think of her as the mother of like the actual physical mother of a physical Jesus. Right. And what that means for redemption. Right. And then we can cycle that into, well, she's also a woman. Right. So I don't need to worry about her in that way. Right. And it just creates this cycle downwards about both women and Mary. Yeah. Which is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Right. (laughs) Right. We should say, oh my goodness, look at the dignity and worth of women in this ancient Near Eastern culture that God is bestowing. Right. Mm -hmm. Look at how it's just like, notice the importance of Mary in the, you know, birth narrative, the importance of uh, women at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, you actually, Matthew records this unnamed, quote unquote, unnamed woman to show how low she is. She's the one who prepares him for his burial. Yeah. Matthew. Like yeah. women, God uses women at all these very significant places. And so sometimes when we're like, well, no, I've even heard people say, no, the story of redemption is really the story of men. I'm like, you can't get that biblical. No, no, <laughs> no. Now, I don't want us to get too far off track. I think yeah. that was really helpful, but you know, I want to go back because I think still, again, and for anyone who is like, this is a really interesting concept about kind of mm. limitations and freedom through those limitations. Right. Definitely go buy the book. Mm. Available, I'm assuming, absolutely everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, January, January 18th. <laughs> January 18th, right. Yeah. Sorry, I was just assuming because I already have my copy. Yeah, you know, haha, everyone else. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but when we say that, that that it is good and it is holy to have kind of finiteness, right? right? These limitations. How do we to go back to that question? How do we pair that, and how do we kind of walk that tight line between the freedom of saying? you know, I don't have to do more Uh to be human. The drive of being human to do more in a healthy way, 
Um, how do we balance that? How do we actually kind of think about that in a way that we're given through creation? Maybe. Yeah. The, uh, fantastic question. It's obviously a lot, you know, Sorry, they should read the book, but, um, you know, and especially <laughs> yeah, just the, the last... cliff notes, don't, uh, don't give the answer, right? Like right up to the, no, right but, to no the it's point. a great question. I want to explore it, but like the last chapter I do, it, it's a much longer chapter and it's trying to be very particular. I think things like sleep, I think sleep is a spiritual discipline hmm. and the scriptures are replete. Part of the, the amazing thing about God is he never sleeps, but we are supposed to sleep. Yeah. And you find it is a, it is it is linked to kind of spiritual formation. And I it, it's kind of like when you're on the battlefield, you can never sleep because you don't know if anyone's got your back. Right. But in, but in those situations, if someone has your back, then you can sleep. Well, with believers, we are supposed to be able to sleep because God has our back. And when we when we act like sleep is optional, it betrays this idea that the weight of the world is upon us. Yeah. Right. This yeah, is yeah, part yeah. of the ancient idea of Sabbath. It's it's so funny because in America, um, this idea of not working one day in seven, we're kind of like, I, I no, I want to be able to do stuff on the seventh day. But honestly, again, go to the ancient Near Eastern world. It's revolutionary. This is crazy because our God says you don't have to work on the seventh day. And all of these oppressors who are doing this to you. That's not how you should be treated and you should not treat others this way. You need rest. Right. Yeah. And it just shows how culturally kind of messed up we are that our biggest question is not, um, can I rest one day in seven? It's can I work every day? Right. And, and it, so, um, now in terms of pushing into our limits, I'm for entrepreneurs do great things. You know, I'm an academic. I, I have to push myself. I was just speaking out of town in Maine. It took a lot of extra hours. And we are made physically, intellectually, and otherwise, you can be pushed for a season. Yeah. But we know this. We know this from warfare. We know this when, I mean, there is a ton of psychological, neurological, other uh, studies being done. That, and it's happening in this prosperous Western world people's bodies are breaking down. Right. Uh, I was just reading of, of this um, former uh, correspondent for CNN and all this, and she just was working countless hours. In her 30s, she was physically breaking down. Yeah. And so um, the short answer is, I do think we can push ourselves, but the problem we face is that we don't have enough communal living. So that means we are trying to decide should I do more or less rather than our networks and communities are saying, do more. Now you've done too much. You know, you, hmm. you, we need, we need communities, healthy communities where everyone does some, but you don't do it all. So an entrepreneur can start a business and work crazy hours for a while. But when that becomes not just a startup season, but becomes life, we all know it deteriorates relationships. It deteriorates health deteriorates intellectual ability. So there are costs because that's just not how God made the world. So I, I do think we, we can push ourselves, but we have to push ourselves in ways that look faithful. And so one of the tests are the way I'm pushing myself, is this allowing for the fruit of the spirit to grow in me? 
Hmm. Or is this yeah. cultivating other kind of fruit? Right. Right. And we all know this when we're too busy, we get bitter, we get angry, we're short, we're self-consumed, all kinds of unhealth grows out of that. Yeah. I think that's such a wonderful question. And not just because I'm from a Pentecostal background, mm. um, but this continual question, you know, growing up in, in some spaces and in a lot of theological spaces, there were a lot of people that said, there's a, a sense in which we can build these fruit of the spirit mm. within ourselves, right? Like we right. can practice joy or we can practice these things in order to grow them. Mm. When it seems that the weight of what some of the New Testament authors are writing about isn't quite so much practicing those things in order to be more with the spirit, but rather the opposite, being more with the spirit grows those things. And yeah, it's work, right? I'm sorry. Well, you can give. Yeah. I, and in some ways, it, at times, it probably is a false dichotomy, right? That, mm-hmm. and, and the way Peter puts it at, at some point, there are these virtues that we practice and we practice them in light of the presence and power of the spirit. Right. Right. But, but you but you are absolutely right. The emphasis in the New Testament is not. That's what that's the contrast with the ancient Greek world is. This is the fruit of the spirit. It's not the fruit of merely trying harder. Yeah. Um, but but Paul never seems, N.T. Wright's book on virtue recently is a good example of this. Paul, he doesn't think you choose between agency and dependence on the spirit. Right. right? But for us, I do think, I just wish we would ask more, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, truth. Is that what, what's happening? And I think we're, if we're honest, when it comes to these issues, that scares us because we feel like, well, that's not very productive then. Right. Those are lazy people. I think, well, in, I put it this way. I think efficiency is often the enemy of love Hmm. and we have got to become more comfortable with inefficiency. That's a statement for the church. Yeah. And we scared to death of it. Right. (laughs) I mean, I'm personally scared to death of it. Yeah, no. And, and I think, I think you're right in the fact that when we talk about kind of this idea of kind of, I, I like using those, those kind of terms uh, in terms of agency, mm. but you know, the relational positioning that we have with the spirit yeah. where we can, where we can both self-reflect and communally reflect yeah. when we've, when we've pushed so far mm. that we are no longer relationally positioned, mm. whether with community or the spirit, that those things are still a part of our life, joy and peace and, yeah. and long suffering where, where we've, we've lost those because the relational positioning is gone yeah, and because we're no longer practicing them at the same time. Right. Yeah. I like that. I mean, as you and I know, the spirit can and does speak through our lives when we're busy and when it's loud and there's a lot of noise, but it really seems historically and experientially it's much easier to hear and respond to what the spirit seems to be doing when you're at a more humane pace. Yeah. It just is. Um, and, and I think, and maybe to some degree, right. This like really pushes back against one of the biggest issues, even within the new Testament and, and within our, especially our Western culture, the mm. spirit of mammon, right? The spirit of, oh yeah, that's huge. of more of, of consumerism of how do I get, how do I have, how do I do mm. this? Right. Where along with what you're saying, kind of accepting that 
comes with contentment, the very yeah. thing that Paul pushes in Philippians, yeah. right? Being content. Right. And and learning what to strive for versus what not to strive for. Yeah. Really kind of encourages us in better humane rhythms of life. Yeah. Content. I, I like that you picked the word contentment. I think that is a great way into this kind of conversation and a way to, to think through it in life. Um, we're not to be content with our sin and just go, yeah, this, this is good, but we are to be grateful for the gifts we've been given. Mm -hmm. And um, when you get a kid at Christmas who opens a gift and says, Oh, this is great. And then they immediately move on to the next gift and the next gift and the next gift, and then never return to what was originally given. You're kind of like, hmm, well, maybe that, maybe that's not so good. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there is something about moving at a pace where one can enjoy the gifts that one's been given. And and part of part of one of the motifs in the book is I'm very interested in seeing once you embrace you're a creature and our interdependence with others is part of that, you learn you don't have to be competitive with everyone. You can actually encourage mm, people. You yeah, can yeah, delight yeah. and celebrate in others. And that goes against everything in our culture right now because we are all supposed to be the best the brightest the the right you know and the church should be different we should be delighting in one another not in narcissistic mark driscoll kind of ways but but delighting in one another celebrating one another and when we do that we're celebrating each other's gifts and we're also in the main same sense recognizing i couldn't do all of that yeah i'm not supposed to do all of that right and and that liberates you to celebrate others. And I think that celebration of others also liberates people and and giving of what they have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, part of the part of the problem with striving is that when you feel so competitive with someone else, mm. and let's say you do have a lot or you are gaining a lot, mm. but you still exist in that competitive reality, it's much harder for you to actually let go of those things and to give those things away. But when you have a community surrounding you, going, "Hey, we're here for you. You yeah. you're doing amazing." And, and lifting people up, when you take that competitiveness away, people tend to be much more free-handed yeah. with the things that have been given to them. Yeah. Right? And, and no, I think you're, you're exactly right. One of the uh, things that was really fun for me to write is there's a chapter on humility, which was like, why are we talking about that? I thought we we're talking about limits and, and finitude. It's, it's a longer conversation, but here's the, the thing. In the history of the church, and definitely in some of our circles to this day, we often base the idea of humility on you're a sinner, so be humble. Yeah. And actually, biblically and theologically, my argument is, no, no, no. Even if there were no sin or fall, being a creature means yeah. you are called to be humble. Humility is not a bad thing. It It is just, it is part of the recognition I'm dependent on the earth, I'm dependent on my neighbor, and I'm dependent on God. Yeah, that humility. And that's a celebratory thing. It is not a, I'm such a terrible person. So, so we get, we all know we should be humble. And then the way we often encourage people to do it is think of what a bad sinner you are that then can actually yeah. ironically be self-absorption. <laughs> right. if I say, no, cultivate humility by learning to celebrate and elevate others. That's something you can actively do without some of the unhealthiness of kind of wormology or something like that, that I'm just a terrible worm. I mean, we are sinners. I'm not trying to deny that, but 
there, there are other things going on in a healthy view of humility. No, I, I love that because it, to some degree, it's actually reevaluating the way that we always approach humanness again, yeah. where for so long, our entire humanness has been based on the first, the prima facie point that we are sinners. Right. Right. And that has created, I think, so much unhealthiness because it hasn't allowed us to see humanity as humanity. Right. It sees it as this irrevocably damaged thing in everything that it does. Right. And so therefore things like humility have to be done in light of sinfulness right. versus in light of who we are always meant to be. Exactly. Right? So, and, and so, for example, you may remember, I explore this idea. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. We often memorize that in Galatians and we're like, okay, I no longer live, been crucified with Christ and it's this idea, I'm just a sinner and it's all bad. But Paul goes on and says, and the life that I live, I live in faith. Paul is not saying that he no longer lives. The right. idea is that his sin is being crucified with Christ in order to liberate him to live the way God originally intended him to live. And yeah. so God, God is not trying to destroy your humanity. He's trying to destroy sin because yeah. he likes what he made and he doesn't like the distortions of what he made. Yeah. That, and that's so this a, idea in the book, exploring this idea, we all know that God loves us. But a question I've learned to ask people is, do you think God likes you? Yeah. Do you think God likes you? And for a lot of us, that's a really hard question to ask. Yeah. Yeah, we, because for I think for a lot of us, we don't like ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because when you turn to like, it feels like, you know, it's kind of like you're as parents, you have you're required to love your children. Right. And we think God's required to love us. But like then there's something like particular about this maker who made us and he likes what he made. And, yeah. and that's just worth thinking about. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And again, I think this really is. Uh, in in the history, maybe in the past 50 years of theological thinking, it really is starting to kind of change things again for us. Like we've, we've really been weighted down for a long time and especially some of the books being written now on Sabbath Mm. and about kind of humanity and, and I think healthier ways Mm. are pushing us to be able to be at peace more than we've ever been able to be. Mm. But let me ask you this question what was probably, you know, if there's one thing that you can say in all of your research for this book, what was the most surprising or maybe even important point or facet for you that kind of moved you forward in writing the text? Gosh, that's that's a great and difficult question for me. I mean, in some ways, it's stuff we've been talking about. For me, the really unpacking this idea that I don't have to apologize for being a creature Hmm. and God wants me to be a faithful creature, Kelly Capic. He doesn't need me to be superhuman or something else. I have gifts. Other people don't have, and I have a ton of weaknesses and limits besides all of my sin that other people don't have. Right. Yeah. So, um, for me, this, this really exploring, exploring that's been important. Another area that we haven't talked about is, um, process. Uh, There's a chapter on the spirit delighting to use process. And again, that's Mm. an example in creation, whether you think the earth is 17 billion years old or 
a literal six 24 hour days that it took to make it. Even if you're super conservative and say it's this really, you know, seven day period, it doesn't matter. Either one of those admits that God who could have made the world like that, you know, snap, right. Took his time. And the spirit hovers over the tohu lavohu, the spirit hovers over the chaotic waters and starts to bring order, right? Right. And God has always been a God who delights and is comfortable with process. And I think we're very uncomfortable with process. Right. But when when we become Christians, I've learned that this, this doctrine of creation matters because as he renews us, we are new in Christ, but he is also engaging in a process, growing us, and he's not panicked. I panicked about my sin and weaknesses and shortcomings, and he he began a good work, and he's going to see it to completion. Right. So process was another area that was fun to explore. That's a, that's a fascinating point, and one that uh, I wish we had time and we don't, but the idea... <laughs> yeah. Oh, this and, has been fun. And, and Christianity just doesn't know how to handle this. And, and mm-hmm. I know that so much in, in kind of some Jewish theology has handled this a lot more deeply. But the idea that in creation, God created something that was chaotic. Right. Yeah, that's right. That needs this processing, that needs this order, right? And and I think we need to kind of really spend some time. Maybe maybe uh, maybe you can come back at some point and tell me <laughs> that because I have no idea, right? Yeah. Because I mean, as you can guess... It gets very tricky when people, I know some people who heard you just said that they're going to panic a little bit, Oh but, yeah. but the idea is God really does m- make everything and he makes it all good, but there is an ancient tradition. I don't want to get either of us in trouble, but, but to, God makes everything good. Whether or not it, you might call it perfect or not is another question, but that's because we understand perfect in a certain way. But in the ancient world, perfect meant complete or yeah. full. So God makes everything good. But from Irenaeus to this day, I, the best understanding is God, when God made creation, it wasn't static. It was meant to go somewhere. Yeah, It was always meant yeah. to go and develop somewhere. So it was good and it was going to keep getting better and ultimately made perfect. So when it says that Jesus is made perfect, it doesn't mean that he was formally imperfect or sinful. It means he took on the fullness of humanity, experienced right. the fullness of these things. Anyway, sorry, yeah. that was a longer answer than... No, no, no. <laughs> I think that's really, really important. Mm. And I want to spend an entire podcast on yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, uh, and keep going, but right. we do need to get going. Yep. I, I mean, I, I want to just talk with you forever. So oh, uh, kind. there's that, fun. you know, just throw my heart on my sleeve, Kelly, just throwing <laughs> it right out there for you. Um, but I appreciate you taking the time. Tell us again, the book's coming out. You said January, I think 18th, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's with Brazos press Baker academic or well, it's Brazos part of Baker uh, group. <laughs> And um, yeah, it's everywhere. You can, I'm not on uh, Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. I'm sorry. I'm not on Twitter. You, you can, you know, I, on at Covenant, there's a faculty page and it has some links for me speaking and stuff like that. But besides that, um, I'm dependent upon the rest of you in, in, in social media to uh, take an interest. So oh, you're better off without the social it's, media it's, stuff. It's for my own soul, even though I'm very grateful for those who can do it well. If we could only learn our own finitude, 
with this social media thing, yeah. then maybe, uh, maybe we'd be a little better off, but yeah. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been you wonderful. It. It's been good seeing you again. And, uh, I hope that we'll do this again. Sounds good. Thank you, friend. Been fun. Thank you. Uh, hey, Chris. Hey, good to see hey. you again. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's been a long day, but a good day. You know, I think you need the conversation I just had with Kelly. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, I think I'm we sure all need that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Funny enough, when I was first getting on with Kelly and we were just chatting, I was like, oh, I'm so busy today and I've got to do this and we're doing this recording. And then, and then I'm like, oh yeah, we're talking about your book, which talks about how we need to start being okay with our limits and finitude. And I'm like, ah, dang it. I clearly, I didn't uh, take your book in well enough, but now I'm going to thanks. Nice. Nice. But Hey, in that conversation, we had an interesting kind of like sidebar when we were talking about it and something I was like, you know what we need to have Chris and I need to have this conversation because it is something that's not discussed a lot within the church. In fact, if anything, within kind of the Western Protestant evangelical churches, it's actually kind of diminished for, and been diminished for a long time. And I know you've done a lot of work on it, uh, on this person and on the topic, but I, I thought, why don't we actually just chat a bit about how do we approach Mary in Protestant evangelical circles? What can we gather from Mary and why is it so important that we do this work and kind of reframe our thinking about Mary? So I want to start with just a basic conversation or basic question for you. And maybe it's way too wide. Maybe it's way too big of a question, but it's the basic one that I've got. Where have we gone wrong and thinking about Mary? Yeah. That's a, yeah, it is, that is, that's a heavy, it's a hard question to answer, right? A hard, hard question to answer. Well, I think part of the answer, right. Has to be, there's a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment, right. In mm. evangelical circles, which I, I think it has a, all kinds of roots, right. I mean, it's not, this is one of those issues that it's not tap rooted, right. There, there are many, many roots to it but i think it's an interesting question historically it's also i think an interesting question kind of spiritually like what is it about mm. about us and so and so some of it i think is a kind of impatience with mediation right so like there's a there's a way in which the kind of evangelical spirituality that you and i are often often confronting and wrestling with because it's the one that's shaped us right for good and bad yeah is it's often it wants to get to God and it doesn't want anyone to get in the way, right? It doesn't want any, it doesn't, you know, I, I think about the story of Naaman, right? When he comes to get healed yeah. and he wants to see the prophet. And when the prophet sends the servant out to tell him what to do, like he just loses, loses his mind. Right. Like, yeah. Don't you know who I am? Like, I'm like, I'm Naaman for God's sake. Right. You, yeah. you come out here and talk to me yourself. Right. And it's there's something about that 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 impatience sometimes it's right and good like there's another story involving elisha where a woman he's promised she will have a son she tells him you know i i don't need a son he says forget it you're gonna this time next year you'll have a child and she does and then the child grows up and dies i think at 12 or something 
And she, she hunts him down. Right. And she won't, she's not going to talk to the servant. Like she's yeah. to the prophet. So I think there are ways in which that, that kind of insistence on getting to God, getting in touch with God. There's something about that that can be really beautiful and inspiring. Like the sense of I'm going to get alone with God on my face and I'm not going to get up from prayer until I've right. touched God. Like there's a way in which that, there's something about that that's admirable, but man, when it goes wrong, it just turns into just this kind of harsh impatience with everybody else. Right. And I think that some of it is that like, some of it is Mary feels like she's getting in the way we're not here to talk to her. We're here to talk to Jesus. You know, can, can I give one irony of that? Yeah. yeah, And then, and then you can kind of keep going. Right. One of the biggest ironies of this idea of the mediation thing for me in which so much in our individualized Western culture, we prioritize this idea that we ourselves can go directly to God. Yeah. We ironically don't recognize how very often we, we don't, we, we betray our own belief system in that. The second that we get sick and we call someone and say, can you pray for me? You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. and, and the irony of the fact that in the New Testament, there is so much discussion on mediation of community, oh, of, of elders, of other people praying on your behalf on like, there's something about yeah. this reality that this is much more than just an individualization between us and God. Absolutely. Yeah. While there is still the availability of that as well. Right. Well, yeah, I would say that not just that the new Testament speaks about that. The new Testament is that right? right. is mediation. Right. Yeah. And not just that we, I would say not that we have God and people, we have God in people and people Mm. in God, right? Like it's, it's the, the way Christ is present to me is never without you. And when it's, when it's you, it's never just you because Christ is present with you. I mean, this scripture bears witness to this at every turn. And, and I think we know it. We just don't really believe it (laughs) in our worst moments. We don't really believe that that's true. And so it's that kind of, I think that's, again, that's just one of the roots of many, but I do think there is a kind of impatience with, with Mary and, uh, and the anti-Catholic sentiment. And then I think the fear of our own humanity, right? So part of, I think the reason, so I've talked about it as impatience, but I think there's also a way in which we're, we're afraid that mediation will mislead us, right? That, you know, human beings will fail you, but God will never fail you. Right. You know, is so, so, so deeply problematic as a way of, of thinking because what you're suggesting is you can somehow get around dealing with human beings and God will always save you from that. But that's not how it works. Right. It's it's and, me and God versus everyone else. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we all know, and like you're saying, no one actually lives that way because you can't right? like, you can't actually get by with that, but you can talk like it sometimes and you can act like it in particular moments. Yeah. So I, those are just a couple of the reasons I think we've lost touch touch with Mary. Now, now let's maybe in the anti-Catholic sentiment that kind of permeates evangelicalism. And one of the most ironic kind of things about that is this like insistence that evangelicals and Christians believe a different set of beliefs. 
when I, I remember a conversation that I was in one time in a meeting room with a bunch of people and someone was like, basically just said, well, we're not Catholics. And someone else said, well, we, we read the Bible and we pray to the same God and we, we all worship Jesus. So what part of it makes us not right. And, and it's kind of that irony that we still see ourselves as so separated, but maybe for Mary, one of the biggest issues because of that anti-Catholic sentiment, or maybe that creates more of that anti-Catholic sentiment. And this goes beyond just Mary, but also the saints within Catholicism is, well, it's not just mediation. It's mediation through someone who is dead. Yeah. What do we do with that? Yeah. 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 Well, first of all, dead to us, but not dead to God. That's the first thing. I mean, Mm. God is God of the living, not of the dead. Right. So part of our problem is, and here I'm talking specifically about our group within American evangelicals is that we've got a really bad theology of eternity and heaven and death. Like it's, it's a very, I would say pagan, but that's not fair, right. To pagan tradition. (laughs) It's it's just, it's a, it's a kind of warped quasi Christian view of the dead. And it's very Gnostic as well, right. Very influenced by that same group that Kelly and I talked about a little bit. Yeah. It's Gnostic, but it's a kind of dumbed down twisted version, right. It's right. There's no kind of coherence or sophistication. It's not even smart enough for the it's Gnostics. Not, exactly, exactly. It's not. It's not learned enough, even for Gnosticism, any more than it is for Paganism. It's right. just. It's um, it's kind of a nightmarish mashup of half Christian convictions, and it it leads to all kinds of confusion. I mean, I, I to be clear, Robert Jensen has this wonderful line at the end of his systematics where he says. The saints are not our way to God. God is our way to the saints. And I think that's mm. right. And like, no, I don't think anyone believes if they do, they, they shouldn't that, that Mary and the saints are somehow saving us. Right. I mean, Jesus is our savior and, and no one else, but the way in which Jesus saves us always involves other people. And there wouldn't be Jesus if it weren't for Mary. I mean, that's just right. the like, she's his mom. Right? Like, like, right. Like there wouldn't, there would be no Jesus there. And and what's weird. And now I'm really about to freak some of our listeners out, assuming we have listeners. <laughs> I think we've got a couple. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The, they what, email me when something goes wrong. Don't worry. Well, you're going to get emails. Here we go. Ah, Perfect. So I was very young. I mean, eight, nine years old. And I was doing my like bedtime devotionals, you know, as you do. Um, and you know, probably reading Leviticus in the King James version or something. Mm, the most fascinating. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't say I wasn't a strange kid, but uh, <laughs> my evening devotionals and I started praying, of course. And all of a sudden I started singing and I realized that I was singing a song to Mary, thanking her for giving us Jesus. Hmm. Right. It's one of the most Pentecostal moments of my entire life. Hmm. Came from nowhere, at least, you know, as far as I could tell. And I still remember, like, the lyrics were simple. And it was really just that, I mean, as simple as what I said, just, you know, Mary, thank you. Like, you didn't have to share Jesus with us. You did. You, yeah, you made it possible for us to know him. And that, I think, whatever that was in me, I, I stand by that. Right. I mean, I still believe that right? part of honoring her 
is being grateful for that, right? Being grateful that, that she was the kind of person who could bring Jesus to bear in the world. Like quite literally she could bear him. Right. And so I think one level of it is just honor where honor is due. I mean, she did something nobody else has ever done or ever will do. And your song might freak them out, but you know, Mary, did you know, it's like, I'm on the ground crying my eyes out. Right. Mary, did you know? know, That's right. right. Well, but see part of what Mary, did you know, gets the song is that actually, and this is what all the early church fathers, virtually all of them recognize, church mothers too, is you actually can't talk about Jesus without talking about his mom, because there would be no Jesus if it weren't for his mom. You can't talk about Jesus without Israel, and you can't talk about Jesus without Abraham or David, and you can't talk about Jesus without without Mary. You You just can't. And if you try, it's a Jesus you're making up. It's not a Jesus that's actually in the scriptures, and it's not the Jesus that's in our history. And which therefore, is, who's present to us, which is ironic, given in such patriarchal societies, really, Joseph is a figure that just comes and goes. Yeah. Right. But yeah. Mary's Mary's there. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Joseph is, a, I think, a saint. He's a remarkable man. But. You know, Jesus is Jesus. In relation to Joseph, no differently than Jesus is Jesus in relation to me. But Jesus' relationship to Mary is different, right? Like that's yeah. unique. That's truly unique. And the I, I think we have to honor that. Now, one one another layer to this is our relationship to Mary is largely literary. Like we read about the character of Mary, the, the character that's given to us in scripture. And I think it's it's tragic and and should be sobering to us that we don't pay attention to what scripture says about her either, right? Like not only do we not kind of honor what she did, or at least we never speak about it, except, you know, in sentimental moments, like when we're singing, Mary, did you know? Um, But also, but we're not paying attention to what the scriptures actually say about her. And I think that's, that's a conversation worth having too. So what do the scriptures actually say about her? Right. Like if, if we maybe just have just said, yeah, we actually need to look at her a bit more. We need to get past some of these false realities about Mary and recognize that she's much more important to our faith. than maybe we've given her space in the same way that many characters within scripture are important to our faith, but you know, also in this very unique way, what do the scriptures say about her that we can learn to start to take into our lives? Yeah. So I think if we start with the gospels, you get, you get a range of ways of engaging Mary. So she's hardly mentioned at all in Mark, Mark's gospel, which a lot of scholars, as you know, consider to be the earliest. Right. I don't know what that means. I, I'm not sure that there's any significance to that, but be that as it may, I think she's only mentioned once in Mark really. And it's, it can be read kind of one of two ways, right? So there's a scene where the disciples are saying, or the crowds are saying, we know who this is, Jesus. He's the son of Mary. Yeah. And it's a way of kind of dismissing Jesus. So it seems like Mark's point is as simple as, listen, Mary's not, not that important. Like we know her, right? Like not, it's not scandalous. It's not like she has a bad reputation, but she's just a, she's just an ordinary Joe, as we might say. Right. In, just, in some sense, taking away the claim to divinity. Right. That right. Jesus, Jesus doesn't have a right to be talking like he's talking. We know who his mom is. Right. And 
again, not there's no insinuation that she's kind of an unworthy person, but there's just a sense that she's a normal person, right? She's like, a human. He's right. a human being, right? And and so Jesus needs to you know slow his roll because we we know his mom, right, and his brothers. That's Mark's take. In Matthew, there's a little bit more, including the scene where we're told that Mary and Jesus' brothers, whether they're his brothers or his cousins, we'll leave that aside for now. Jesus, some family, they're standing outside waiting on Jesus to finish his talk so they can meet with him. And the disciples say, hey, your, your mom and your family are, are waiting, right? They want to talk to you. And Jesus famously says, or infamously says, who's my mother? Who, who are my brothers? Whoever right. listens to the will of God or the word of God. Now, what's fascinating is we, in, in our circles, we tend to hear that as a kind of rebuke, like a, a kind of, yeah, you know, I don't have a mom. I don't have brothers. Like what matters to me are the people who listen and obey. Right. But Augustine and other, other church fathers took it to mean the exact opposite thing that, that she's so exemplary as a saint precisely because she doesn't rely on her relationship to him as his mother. She's most of all his disciples. So Jesus take, I mean, Matt Augustine takes that story in Matthew and preaches to say, this is, how, this is what makes Mary honorable is that she, mm. does not, she does not take pride in being Jesus mother. She delights in being his disciple. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a beautiful read. Right. I mean, and, and I, I think kind of stunning. That's, so Matthew and Mark, Mary, is is kind of important only in terms of she underscores the normalcy of Jesus, right? The the everydayness of Jesus. Right. You know, again, she's she grounds him in a history that everybody knows and and therefore they don't take him seriously. Right. And then he in Matthew reverses that with, you know, what really matters in your relationship to me is not blood, but faith, right? It's not, it's not kinship, but devotion to me. Right. Right. Um, Right. But in Luke, Mary is absolutely central. I mean, yeah, she goes from being decisively important, but relatively unmentioned in Matthew and Mark to front and center of everything God is doing. I mean, she mm-hmm. in Luke's gospel. She is the prophet that fulfills Israel's entire prophetic tradition. Right. She is. She's Gideon. She's Isaiah. She's Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I mean, she is the whole tradition. Hannah. And I mean, the, like the, the, the whole tra- Holda was the name I was trying to reach for. Like the whole tradition of Israel's prophets, male and female, kind of culminates in Mary. In, and she's the Holy of Holies. She's the Ark of the Covenant. She's, the, the, you know, the place where the, where the presence overshadows. Like in Luke, she could not be more important, right? Yeah. And, that, you know, that's, of course, where we get her song that you've already mentioned and the blessing that she receives from Elizabeth. She's ironic her. given that it's not even written to Jewish people. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, in I terms don't know. Of Luke. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's a fascinating question about why, what is it about Luke that, that makes her, but why does he focus on her the way he does given what Matthew and Mark have done? Right. Yeah. And it's, given his audience compared to their audience and given right? his audience. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so striking, but, but there it is on the page nonetheless. I mean, it's, she's, and, and, and she breaks even to acts. I mean, she's there at Pentecost, so on. I mean, so she's, yeah. she's a decisive presence and, and front and center presence in Luke's gospel. And then if anything, she's even more important 
in John's gospel, right? Like right from the very beginning, she's the one who tells, you know, the watered wine miracle doesn't happen without her. And, you know, she's, she's with him to the end. And so she's a, a remarkable presence in Luke and John. And yeah. you can, you can see the ways in which they're pointing to her, Luke and John, I mean, are pointing to her and, and probably Matthew too, if you read Matthew the way Augustine does, all, all of these then are pointing to her as kind of the exemplary disciple. Like she's the one who teaches us how to follow her son. Right. Like yeah. That, that's, and, and I'm working on a book right now. And that's the subtitle to the book is learning the way of Jesus from his mother. Hmm. And what I'm trying to argue there is that she perfectly embodies the beatitudes. Yeah. That, that in Matthew, part of my argument is that the gospel of Matthew is a callback to the book of Ruth among other texts, but especially the book of Ruth and the story of women like Ruth. So Tamar, Rahab, the women that show up in the genealogy. Yeah. Right. And that Mary is seen as kind of the, the perfect embodiment, the fulfillment of that. So, so Mary is the faithful woman, just like in Luke, she is the, the prophet. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think the scripture is filled with, with, celebrations of her and her faith and her obedience and her wisdom. And I think the book of James, you can read the entire book of James as a kind of commentary on Mary's song where, so if you start with her Magnifica and then you go to the book of James, anything you can find in the, in her prayer, James is unpacking that. And we can go on forever. And then of course she's central again in the book of revelation. Yeah. Which shouldn't surprise us, the woman clothed with the sun and all that. Right, right. Now, you are writing this book on it, and so we don't want to give everything away. (laughs) But but to some degree, you know, what is it today that if we were to talk about Mary and say, you know, here's some takeaways that the church can learn from Mary that has, you know, the church that has predominantly ignored Mary. Like, what do we take away from Mary that might kind of give a teaser both to your book, but then also just kind of helping us, you know, what do we learn? What do yeah. we, how do we, how do we engage with Mary in a healthier way? Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, the first thing we realize is, and this, this is so clear in Luke. So in, in Luke chapter one, the first people we meet are Zachariah and Elizabeth, right? An older couple yeah. that are kind of right out of Genesis. I mean, it's an, a woman who's barren. And, you know, a man who's involved in prayer and, and the, you know, the angel appears, your prayer has been heard, your wife will have a child, all of that. Right. And Luke goes out of his way to tell us that both Zachariah and Elizabeth are perfectly faithful people, right? Like they're, they're the, they're like paragons of obedience. Like they're, yeah. they're blameless. They're, you know, they're Job, they're. Enoch, I mean, these are perfectly faithful people. And he, he tells us about their lineage, you know, they're from this tribe and here's, you know, they, here's where they, they can trace their, and then he gets to Mary and all he tells us is she's a virgin and she lives in this, you know, forgotten place and she's betrothed to Joseph, right? So there's no description, nothing about her being wise or perfectly faithful or obedient or like, there's no description of her giftedness or her spirituality no, no description of her lineage. It's just, you know, here she is. 
right? right. Here's, here's a woman. Except for maybe that David lineage, right? Like, well, yeah, but Luke is not celebrating. No, that not yet. Anyway, that right. she's, you know, got the right bloodline. Right. But what, what's remarkable is he doesn't seem to be celebrating her at all. He just introduces her as here she is a young, yeah. you know, yeah. betrothed. And all of a sudden God shows up and says, you're the chosen one, right? Like you're, you're, you're blessed and highly favored and God is about to do the impossible in you. And what's stunning is how Mary responds, right? So we've just gotten this story about how Zachariah is like, wait a minute, how's this going to happen? <laughs> right. And angel's like, Oh, it's going to happen. And now you're going to, you're going to have to sit and watch it happen. You're not going to get to speak again until, until it's done. And part of the rebuke seems to be Zechariah, this has happened a bunch of other times, right? Like you're a priest in Israel. You should know. Yeah. There is only in Israel because God keeps doing this, right? Yeah. Delivering, you know, women who are too old to have babies, like God's been doing that literally from the beginning. That's what Abraham and Sarah's story is, right? Right. And, but nothing like what's happened with Mary has ever happened before. And so when hmm. she says, how can this be? Because I've known not a man. The angel responds with, don't worry, right? <laughs> it will overshadow you. There's not a rebuke. Right, right. I think that right there is one of the things we learn from Mary, right? That one, on one side, like God coming to us is not dependent upon us kind of having the right history, the right character, the right giftedness. You know, we just are who we are and God can come to us. And when he does, yeah. it's perfectly fine for us to be honest about what we hear, as long as we're not doing what Zachariah did, which is, you know, blatantly ignoring what scripture has already told us. So, I, so to me, yeah. what strikes me first and foremost about it is just her, her unguardedness, right? Her willingness to, to say, okay, well and good, but, you know, kind of strange. I don't think I've ever heard of anything like this before. And and how as soon as that's done, you know, as soon as the angel says, no, 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 don't worry. This is the work of the spirit. She says, let it be done to me. Yeah. And then runs to Elizabeth, right? So on the front end, we've got this kind of audacious honesty. This seems insane to me. <laughs> like you're going to, like, yeah, here's angel Gabriel kind of, you're going to have to explain yourself, right? Like, <laughs> I love that, right? like the, there's a kind of simplicity and unguardedness about it. And she's not dismissing him. Right. But she's also not like. Oh, yay. This is what I've always longed for. It's just a, you're going to have to say more. And when he does, she says, okay, you know, yeah, let it be done. And then immediately flees to Elizabeth for help. And, and in some sense, we can, we can imagine that Elizabeth has prayed for a child for a long oh, time. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're told. That right. Heard. Yeah. And which, of course, Mary's not praying for that. Nope. Right. Which is another thing she teaches us, right? That the best things God does in our lives don't come from our prayers. They're too good for us to have known to ask for. Hmm. So, you know, we can pray for something we know we're missing, but nobody knew to pray for the incarnation. <laughs> like, like right. Nobody knew right. to pray for God to help us. Nobody knew to pray for God to become human and to die with us. Yeah. And that's the wonder of Mary is that she was open to the unthinkable. Like she was, and she was willing to talk about it, ask questions about it. But yeah, ultimately yeah. she was saying yes to something no one else has ever said yes to, or ever could say yes to. And that, I mean, that's what sets her apart. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. I mean, even just to think of that in the sense of, again, we, we talk about kind of prayer, praying for things and that mediation, even in that mediation, the yep. things that we pray for and how very often we might miss the very things God is doing that no one's praying for. Yeah. They're too good for us to pray for. Yeah. Because we don't even know. Right. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, Paul tells us this, like in Corinthians referencing probably a passage in Isaiah, you know, eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It's never entered into the heart of a human being, what God has prepared for us. And then in Ephesians, we pick that up again with God is able to do exceeding abundantly above and beyond all you can ask or think. Like both of those passages are pointing to the fact that whatever we're praying for is not good enough, right? Like what God is going to do is better than what we're asking for, no matter what, yeah. like it doesn't matter what we're asking for. It, what God is doing is better. And there's and something about human faithfulness in that. Yes. About not even needing to ask, right? I know people who, who, who use those passages about, well, I'm asking that God does these things. Yeah. But the example of Mary is Mary's not even asking for God to do those things nope. that she doesn't even know that God's going to do. She's just immediately faithful to the moment when she is asked that's or right. when she is presented. That's right? exactly right. And I think that's why we can imitate Mary, even if we can't imitate Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth is old and wise, incredibly faithful. And some of us just aren't going to be able to do that. Like we yeah. just, we just, we're, we're, we're not old enough. We're not mature enough. We're not disciplined enough. We don't, we've been too damaged. Like some of us are just not going to get there, but all of us can be open to the stuff God does that has nothing to do with how good we are or how wise we are or what we've accomplished. Like all of us can just say, all right, God, here I am. Like, <laughs> let's have the conversation. Like we can, yeah. we can do that. And so in some ways it's Mary's unremarkableness, her, her simplicity, her unguardedness, her humanity, like that, that's what makes yeah. her remarkable. And that's what Luke in particular, and, and John too, in another way, that's what they're celebrating. Right. And, yeah. and a lot more too, right? Like there's more to Mary than even just this one thing to mine that is going to be in your book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Right? There's, there's so much more. I mean, th th I'll say one more thing about it. That is the, the ways in which she suffers with Jesus. Right. So when she goes to the temple um, for, for, to dedicate Jesus and, and she gets a prophetic word, like Simeon is there. Yeah. And he says to her, you know, this, this son of yours is going to be the cause of the rise and fall of many. And a sword will pierce your soul also, right? And then what we're told is that she pondered these things. Like yeah. she she held them close to her heart. Like that, that's stunning. Like, like this way in which the cause like all of us our our suffering for Jesus is always going to be different from hers because she suffers for Jesus and with Jesus in a way no one else can because she's right. Right. Yeah. So she's not only suffering as his disciple, as his child, in a sense, she's suffering and he is her child and she's yeah. suffering in a way none of us can. Right. Mm. There's a uniqueness to that, that I actually think does show us that 
ultimately, each one of us have a unique relationship to Jesus. It's not the same as Mary's, but we all have like uh, this this kind of irreducible difference. Yeah, to the way we know Jesus. Yeah, and, and she's the one who who reveals that for us. Yeah, man, that's that's incredible, and I can't wait for that. I don't think you have a timeline on when that's coming out by any stretch, right? No, not nope. yet. I mean, I've written some chunks of it, but it's been in the works for a long time. I just, I haven't, it's been hard to get a publisher, honestly, because not like the evangelical circles aren't happy with it um, because, you know, what it's about Mary. Right. <laughs> but I, so, you know, I have to find a publisher first. Um, my agent is working on that. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Well, when we get there, We'll make sure everyone knows about it and when it's going to come out. Chris, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you thinking things differently and helping us kind of process things that we've missed. So uh, appreciate the time and we'll chat soon. Sounds good.